0: Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them, the 1st Timothy chapter 6. We're we'll continuing our series in 1st Timothy called Living as God's Household. Um, today is the first Sunday of the month, which means we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, But also because it's March, we're celebrating what we call Mission and Mercy March here at Cornerstone, uh, where we focus annually for four weeks on those two core values, global missions and mercy and justice. And so for the next four weeks at the end of each service, we're going to hear a presentation. Uh, So there's so much going on. In our service today, it's a packed service, so let's jump straight into the Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I invite you to stand with me as an act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading verse 2b until verse 10, hear now God's Word. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in prayer once more. Gracious Father, we ask for your help because it's only by your Spirit. Uh, that your word can be illuminated to mean more than just um, the meaning that anybody coming to it can discern. Uh, When your spirit is present illuminating it, we receive uh, conviction. We receive uh, spiritual instruction. We receive uh, how your spirit uh, intends to use these to uh, operate on us, whether that's to heal things or to expose things. And so we submit ourselves to your word and we ask for your spirit's help at this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we're in First Timothy chapter 6, we're nearing the end of this letter. And as Paul nears the end of the letter, he revisits a topic that he once introduced at the beginning of First Timothy. And that's the topic of the false teachers in the church. Now, this is clearly one of the main issues that Paul wants Timothy to deal with, false teachers and false teaching. Now, remember the thesis of First Timothy has been found in chapter 3. Paul made it clear when he wrote this. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So Paul is saying the reason I wrote this letter is so you as a church might know how to live as a faithful family of God, a household of God. But then there's also this emphasis on the false teachers and false teaching and preserving and protecting sound doctrine. So what's the relationship between the two? What does right doctrine have to do with living as God's household? And the answer is simple. Unhealthy, unsound teaching and doctrine in the church will cause the family to be unhealthy and unsound. It's pretty simple. If you have unfaithful, unsound, unhealthy teaching, the family of God will be unhealthy and unsound and unfaithful. Why? Because the teaching of the church is the diet of the church. What the church is fed, what the church is sustained by, what the church is nourished with that will determine whether a church is healthy or unhealthy. You see, I think we make the mistake often by looking only externally at churches to determine health. I remember once at a ministry previous to serving here at Cornerstone, somebody came to me and said, oh, I know this church is healthy and I know the spirit is at work here. And I said, how do you know that? And I said, well, look how many people there are. And I think that's a very unhealthy way of evaluating, but it's what we do. So many times we look outwardly at churches and when we see churches growing, we equate it with health. And so we look at the size of the sanctuary and the attendance and the number of programs and the amount of weekly giving. And we say, oh, this church is healthy. This church is not. But of course, not all growth is healthy growth. Sometimes growth is unwanted. It's not good. Let's say you have a job interview or a first date you're really looking forward to or a huge work presentation. And the week before that, you look in the mirror and you see like an obvious uh, pimple that's starting to grow. And every day as... That presentation, that date gets nearer. The pimple's just growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Is that good growth or bad growth? We'd all know it's bad growth. i well, someone more serious, though, let's say you go to the doctors and they found a mass, and they ask you to come week after week or month after month, and they're checking on it, and it seems that that mass is growing. Would that be a sign of health or of disease? It would be one of disease. It'd be a cause for concern. You see. The health of a church cannot simply be assessed by what we see going on externally and outwardly. We need to know what's going on inwardly and internally. And much of that has to do with what is the diet of the church? What is the church taking in? What is the church being nourished with? What are they being fed? And Paul's point is that sound doctrine, teaching that is faithful to God's word, true to the gospel that will lead and create churches that flourish and are healthy. And then and only then can the church be the household of God that he wants it to be. And this is why Paul, all throughout the letter, is so insistent on guarding against a false teaching. False teachers who are going to harm the church and hurt the church. Because it's going to destroy the church. It's going to lead to the church's demise. Just like you wouldn't stand for going to a restaurant and seeing one of the line cooks putting in toxic ingredients. Harmful substances into your food. So Paul says, we must be really careful that the gospel isn't changed, that doctrine isn't played with because it's going to harmfully affect the church. And so in contrast to these false teachers, what does Paul say in verse two? He says, teach and urge these things. So Timothy, teach and urge these things, but what are these things? And I take it to mean, Everything Paul has said so far. Paul had just written five chapters and at the end he's saying, make sure you're teaching these things, not the wrong things, but the things I've just told you. And those things are, some of them are doctrinal instruction. Others of it is, uh, other parts of it are practical application. And Paul's saying you need to teach the doctrine of the church and the application. Why? Because a church's doctrinal confession should lead to a form, the culture, for, inform the conduct. Basically, what I'm saying is that what a church believes on paper should translate into what a church does in practice. The beliefs should be believable, seen, felt, experienced in the culture of the church. This is going to give wonderful, powerful testimony. Faithful gospel doctrine will produce powerful gospel culture. This is what a healthy family of faith does. Faithful gospel doctrine producing powerful gospel culture. Just to take an aside, it makes me think, what is the aim of our church? What kind of church do we want to be here at Cornerstone? What kind of church do you want to be a part of? What do we envision a healthy Cornerstone looks like? I'll tell you right now, the answer is not to be cool and impressive and attractive and big and influential. You know, those things may happen. They may not happen. Well, that's not our aim. What's our aim? We strive to be a healthy church, faithful to God's word and gospel doctrine, powerful in gospel culture and the witness we give. We want to be biblical in what we confess, believable in our conduct. So when we look at our passage today, we see two aspects of gospel culture that the church strive to have. And the first is this, unity through humility. Unity through humility. Uh, We learn in verse 3, what are the false teachers doing? They're believing in uh, a different doctrine. It says here that this different doctrine didn't agree with the words of Jesus. It was a teaching that wasn't in accord with godliness. Meaning, the false teachers were taking the gospel and they were playing with it. They were changing it. They were deviating from it. They were distorting it. And thus, they were destroying it. And so what they taught wasn't faithful to what Jesus taught. It, wasn't, uh, it didn't lead to right and godly living. And Paul says, when you have that kind of false teaching, when that's the diet of the church, you know what the end is? He gives a list. The list in verse four, what's the end? Well, it's controversy and quarrels and envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction. And even reading this, you just put a distaste in your mouth because these things shouldn't be found in Christ's church. You know, when you walk into a church, what should you be expect? uh, What should you expect? What should you be met with? You know, I hope it would be hospitality and warmth and welcome and smiles and a holy kiss and hugs and care. Right? Because the culture of the church should be that as we have received the welcome of God, God's people welcome one another. But the situation in Ephesus must be so different because Paul writes these strong words. In Ephesus, when you walked into the church and you spent time around the pews, it was clear there was division in the church. There was friction. There was quarreling with words. That if you joined them for their fellowship hour and they were breaking bread together, as you walked through, you would see different cliques and different groups and everyone would be bad-mouthing one another, speaking gossip and slander. And Paul says that a church culture that's out of line with his doctrine screams hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy gives awful witness to the world. And so Paul has zero sympathy for false teaching. He has zero sympathy for their destructive messages. He's saying, if you get rid of Christ or you displace him, maybe not get rid of him entirely, but you just shift them out of the main focus. When you change the emphasis of the gospel, it's gonna to lead to fracturing in the church. Why? Because the church is held together by Jesus. If he's not at the center and something else is, then everything else is out of place. What does the church stand on? What is our unity? We ground our feet on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and all that he's accomplished. That's our ground. And so Paul says all throughout this letter, I have no sympathy. There should be no room for myths and endless genealogies and unhelpful speculations. He's so upset at the false teaching in chapter four. He calls it the teaching of demons because of what it does to the church. Now we look at our church. And I hope that you're not going, hmm, false teachers. Yeah, we're very familiar with that. And false teachers may not be the issue in our church, but anytime something other than Christ and him crucified becomes a focal point of our attention. If anything other than Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead becomes the center point of all that we do and think and say and believe, then we run the risk of fracturing, of controversy, quarrels, dissension. Imagine somebody came in with a couple of boxes of paperclips and they scattered them all throughout this sanctuary floor, scattered them everywhere under the pews, um, everywhere. How could we bring them together? Well, if we took a very large and powerful magnet and we put it right in the middle of the ceiling and we turn that magnet on, what would happen? In that moment, all the paperclips scattered throughout this room they would come together, not because they were attracted to one another, not because they got along, not because they had the same interests, not because, oh, you went to that high school or oh, you work working in that industry. They would come together because they were attracted to the magnet. The magnet would bring them into unity. You replace that magnet with something else, what happens? All the clips fall. They're no longer gather, gathered, but they're scattered. In the same way, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. He brings us together in unity. And so we must keep the doctrine clear because it's the doctrine that unifies us. And we are united together because we're united to Christ. Therefore, any teaching that replaces him as the main thing, any teaching that substitutes him, will lead us as a family to quarreling and friction. But of course, so many times we do that. We take things that are kind of important, maybe secondary, tertiary things, and we kind of put them at the center. And we put them on par with the saving message of Jesus. And we say, oh, but you should also believe this and you should know this and you should do this. And when we do that, we're challenging Christ as the center. How do we prevent this from happening? Well, we need humility. It's interesting, isn't it? Look at verse four. When Paul talks about these false teachers, look at how he describes them. They're puffed up with conceit, right? they puffed up with conceit, puffed up. They're just full of air with no actual substance. They're just so full of themselves. They weren't humble. They were arrogant, prideful. They thought what they believed was right and true and good is what everyone else needed to believe. They needed to believe as they believed. And Paul says, Oh, no, they don't understand anything. You see, friends, when we're humble and we insist nothing else should take center place other than the gospel of Jesus, that, that begins to do something in the church. It begins to take a very diverse group of people who have different, everything, different perspectives and different preferences and different personal convictions and different politics and, and different stages of life. It takes all of these differences and allows us to come together and be united around Jesus. Now, what if that was felt and experienced in the church? What if that was the culture of the church. Yes, people are so different, but when I come together, there is something about them where they're unified in humility. You know, it's true. The gospel doesn't prevent disagreements. We're we're gonna disagree. All of us have different ideas, different experiences, different worldviews, different vantage points. So disagreement's okay. But the gospel should keep away division and dissension and dispute. You know, it's interesting. We live, if you walk outside the doors of these churches, we live in the most polarized time in our nation's history. And everybody feels the pressure of the culture wars, the tug. But the church stands set apart from the world, and we give aroma and testimony to a different culture, a gospel culture, a culture of unity through humility, because we are united to Jesus by faith, and he is the main thing. And it requires humility to walk in through these doors and to check in all those secondary and tertiary beliefs, lay them aside and say, when I come in here as the church, we are gathered around Christ. That should be the culture of the church, unity through humility. All right, let's move on to the second one, contentment as gain. Contentment as gain. At the end of verse 5, Paul talks about the false teachers and he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And what he's talking about here is that these false teachers that had impure motives— Godliness was enough for them. They didn't care about right living and godliness. They thought godliness was a means to gain. What gain? Financial gain. These were basically false teachers who were in it for the money. And so Paul then pivots and to start, he starts talking about the allure of money. Look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By the we hear, pay careful attention. He doesn't say money is the root of all of evil. the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil." So Paul, is, it's interesting because he, he brings up money and he says, "Well, I know that this isn't just a problem false teachers struggle with, wrestle with. He knows it's a temptation that all believers have. And yet so many of us would admit to it. You know, in all my years I have pastoral ministry, people have come up to me, asked to talk with me. Um, I'm not a priest, but sometimes confess to me. They share all kinds of sins and struggles, all kinds of addictions and behaviors, all kinds of things. Um, To be honest, very few things surprise me anymore. Um, But in all my years of pastoral experience, no one has ever come to me and confessed, Pastor, I have a problem. I love money too much. Nobody has once ever expressed that. Now, are you surprised? Is it really that surprising? Would you be willing to admit that to yourself? See, money has a way of blinding us. So none of us think we have a problem with money. We have desire for money. Yeah, we want to make money, but we don't think those desires are sinful or idolatrous. We just want a little more. I just A little more and I'll be comfortable. A little more and, and things aren't so tight around here that we can have peace. More security, less worry, less fear. And so yeah, I don't love money. I, I just... It'd be nice to have a little more. But what starts off so innocent easily becomes a trap. This is why in verse 9, Paul says it leads into temptation or into a snare. What's a snare? It's a hidden trap that you don't see that you're blind to until it's too late. And Paul says you need to be careful of the trap, the temptation, the snare. Why? Because money, which is supposed to be used by us, ends up using us. Money so quickly becomes a counterfeit God. And instead of using money properly as stewards of God, to serve him, to bless others, we take money and we begin to worship it. We derive our identity from it. We begin to place our hope in it, our security in it. And Paul is so aware of the tendency of the human heart. He gives this severe truth, this kind of wake up call, a sobering reality. He says in verse seven, For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Don't you know how temporary and fleeting this is? How temporary and fleeting you are? I think what's going on here is Paul is actually alluding to the Old Testament character Job. Job who was rich and had everything, all of it was taken away. What does he say in Job 1 verse 21? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. It took great suffering for him to learn that lesson a lesson that we need to learn. We obsess over money and wealth and riches as if it's eternal. But your life here on earth is not eternal and the treasures you accrue here on earth are not eternal. You may be familiar with the famous Egyptian pharaoh, King Tut. Everyone knows King Tut. King Tut, wealthy with riches beyond our wildest imaginations. And when he died and he was buried in his tomb, mummified, His officials did what they did for every other pharaoh because it was the Egyptian belief that the pharaoh would transition to the next life, the afterlife. And in order to live comfortably there, you need to give him his crown and his thrones and his jewelry and gold plates and utensils. And they put all of his riches in the tomb with him. And then what happened? A hundred years ago, Howard Carter unearthed King Tut's tomb. And guess what? All the treasures remained exactly where they were because the man who brought nothing into the world was also the same man who took nothing out of the world. Everything remained where it was. And Paul wants to give us that sober perspective, that wake up call, listen, money always over promises and under delivers. And yet we chase after it, we pursue it, we desire it, we dream about it, we want it, but why at best, riches of this world only offer temporary satisfaction. How long is it before you want some more? And at worst, money and the riches of this world offer no satisfaction because how many people have achieved all that they could ever want and still feel so empty inside? It's the wisdom of the author of Ecclesiastes, who himself was a very rich man who said in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, evil, vapor, smoke, meaninglessness. This morning, I'd like us to take time to just consider our relationship to money. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't have that much, so I don't struggle with it. You see, friends, that's not true. Whether rich, poor, or somewhere in between, all of us struggle with the love of money. Some of us struggle because we're hoarding it. And some of us are struggling because we are chasing after it. And in what way has the love of money led you into snares and into temptations? And Paul wants us to consider this seriously because it's not so much the love of money that's the problem. He says, when you love money so much, you're missing the true source of your contentment. This is actually Paul's point. It's not actually about money. It's about the source of contentment. So he writes in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying, listen, some of you think money is great gain and wealth is great gain and having a nice cushy retirement plan is great gain. But what is great gain? It's godliness with contentment. That is contentment in Christ. Contentment in Christ that cannot be touched because whether you have a little or you have a lot, whether you're in a season of abundance or a season of famine, in Christ, you have all you need. This is gospel doctrine. What we believe that in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, kept for us, secured for us in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy it or thief can break in and steal it. What we have in Jesus, our eternal inheritance, kept there for us, waiting for us, never never in jeopardy of being stolen. Jonathan Edwards once said, your bad things will turn out for good. Your good things can never be taken away from you and the best things are yet to come. Those good things we have may not necessarily be good things that we can hold now, but there are things in heaven and they can never be taken away. And the best things yet are awaiting us. Not just the gifts, but the giver. You see, when Christians truly know and believe Christ has secured all this for us, all that is ours and waiting for us in heaven, then contending in Christ becomes our greatest gain. Is contentment in Christ your gain? Is Christ your gain? It was for Paul. So he wrote in Philippians 1:21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is dying gain? It sounds like you lost, Paul. He says, I won because when I die and I go to heaven, not only is there the eternal riches awaiting for me, but there is Christ himself waiting for me. Christ is my gain. What begins to happen to the culture of the church as we believe this? For those who love not money, but love Christ, what begins to happen? We begin to treasure Jesus, love Jesus, pursue after Jesus. Unlike anything else. Because we know that while earthly treasure can be enjoyed for a time here on earth, Christ will be enjoyed now and forever into eternity. So, your love for Jesus, your devotion for Jesus becomes something different. And the way it manifests itself is contentment in what we have. So, they're all who walk in through the doors. They see it and they feel it. They say, This church, whatever the people have, whatever they possess, I need that. That's what I want. You know, we live in such a day where everything is marketing, everything is advertisement. Your phone is always listening to you, telling you what you want, suggesting things you want, bombarding you with ads for what's new and what's most popular, what's trending, what's viral. You need this. You want this, have this. And the culture is hard at work to get you to say, I need that. And even if we don't want to admit it, it's far more successful than we want. But imagine if the culture of this church sort of exuded another kind of advertisement contentment in Christ is gain. And so that the world would look at the church and would look at Christians and say I need that. What is that? That's what I need to have. That's what I want. Paul had it. So he writes in Philippians 4:11 I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had this contentment in Christ because he knew Christ was his gain. And he desires Timothy have it. He desires the church in Ephesus has it. He desires you and I to have it. And so may we have contentment in Christ and consider that to be our greatest gain. You see, this is what the gospel begins to do. If we don't deviate into false teaching, we don't mess with the gospel, we keep Christ right where he is. And we exude to the world a culture of unity through humility. And we begin to treasure and cherish Christ. And we need to exude a culture. The contentment in him is our greatest gain. Let's be that kind of church. Would you pray with me?